This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Hey. And we're coming off of a busy, uh, long holiday weekend here in the United States, but uh, all the action was really over in London with the BAFTA Awards. Um, And back in L.A., the DGA Awards happen on Saturday night. Um, So we'll go into the uh, awards news in a moment, and then in the second half you'll hear our uh, long-awaited by us, and I think some listeners, 2003 Oscars flashback episode. Uh, Looking back at the films of 2002, this is the year of Gangs of New York and Chicago and the hours and the ceremony that happened in 2003, and we're joined with our returning guests and friends, uh, Joe Reed and Chris File, the hosts of the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast. Um, but first, we'll, we'll turn our faces to the news. Um, David, you were on hand at the DGAs on Saturday night. Um, the BAFTAs were the next morning. Somehow, people like the Daniels uh, flew from L.A. to London in time for both, which I cannot wrap my head around. You you went to one. Um, how, how was the <laughs> There was no jet waiting for me, which, Katie, I think you have to have a conversation with our higher ups about that. Yeah, we got to work on the budget next year. I've been using it too much. I'm sorry, guys. I should share <laughs> no, That's what they yeah. said. They said it's Lawson. Uh, the Daniels won at the end of the night, which is something I, I think we talked about a little bit on the show uh, was a possibility, but maybe a little bit of a surprise. Um, what were the vibes like? Yeah, I mean, the DGA both last year and this year have gone both times since COVID opened it back up uh, has basically proceeded like a you know, worship fest of Steven Spielberg that ends with him not winning. It's a very (laughs) strange experience. Last year, he was nominated for West Side Story. You'd have everyone from Jane Campion to Denis Villeneuve just completely paying tribute to him because every nominee gets to give a speech before the winner is announced. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh, my God, is like, is Jane Campion going to (laughs) lose? Because, you know, you feel this energy from all these filmmakers in this room who adore and look up to this man so deeply and who talk about how their entire careers are based around their inspiration from his work. Um, He did not win. And again, he did not win today. And it was the exact same dynamic. Even more significant, I would say, because... This time, Spielberg was considered a possible winner, number one. And number two, the whole Fableman clan was there at his table. They didn't present. Denis Villeneuve, uh, ironically enough, presented for him. Um, They just came to support him. Judd Hirsch, Michelle Williams, Paul Dano, and Gabriel LaBelle. 
and you really got the sense that they were there for his big moment that didn't happen. And it was kind of, I don't want to say a bummer because it was a, such a thrilling moment for the Daniels, but you know, this was probably his last stand for the Oscar race, I would say. And it was strange. It felt to me very anticlimactic um, that it was more the best picture front runner, um, which is usually how the DGA goes. In retrospect, it wasn't a huge surprise, I suppose. But yeah, that that was that was the vibe. I, I found it a bit a bit off, to be honest with you. <laughs> hmm. Did, did you get like? Did you talk to other people in the room who sensed that? Well, I mean, everyone. At, I, I was at a faraway table <laughs> um, who were just, you know, the, I, I think if you aren't following the race, you're there f- kind of assuming Spielberg's going to win. Mm. You know, if you're just a director for a commercial or, you know, a TV episode um, who's nominated, and there were some really thrilling winners on the TV side, actually, you know, the, you're, you're capturing the energy in the room, you're going to expect Spielberg to end the night as the, you know, because that's just the way it feels. Um, not to say it wasn't, you know, people weren't ecstatic for the Daniels. Um, it's two sort of dual things going on there, I suppose. My theory for so long had been that, you know, the Daniels made this movie that's beloved, like it's really on this clear path to best picture. And we can talk about whether this weekend changed that. But, you know, this is their second feature. They're young. And we've seen a lot of director and picture splits in recent years. And it just seemed to me like they'll, they'll have their nomination. The film will win best picture. But like someone like Spielberg um, and pretty much only Spielberg could swoop in. Why isn't that happening? Do we think that people just forget that Spielberg has not won very often? <laughs> like, I, w- I did this piece with Tony Kushner, which is up this week. And so I was reminded again that Spielberg has only won director twice and picture once and has 22 nominations. And I just wonder if people just think he's won a lot more over the years than he has, because that's sort of insane that he has only walked away with three trophies total. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me of the Argo year a little bit when he was kind of a clear winner for Lincoln or probably should have been when Ben Mm -hmm. Affleck wasn't nominated. Because I actually think if you had a few more days, and we'll get into BAFTA, if you had a few more days of Oscar voting, I think Edward Berger would have been nominated and probably would be winning that Oscar right now. Wow. Um, Because, I mean, there's just a ton of support for that movie that's pretty undeniable. I don't know that that would translate to a... um, to a Best Picture win, but um, I think that is that is a clear director's movie, and you could see that coalescing happening. Well, it's like Life of Pi, the Argo year, right? Like, the giant technical achievement is what wins right. director. It, but it was also a year where Spielberg had this monumental artistic achievement that was very critically respected, that got a ton of nominations, and he didn't win. And um, it was another year where you had a kind of movie as a frontrunner for Best Picture that well, in that case, was definitely not winning Best Director. Um, but this year, Director had fe- has felt open, and he seemed like the obvious person to fill in that slot. But then the industry just says, eh, maybe we don't care about this movie that much, which I actually think is what the real answer is. That the Fablemans, it's not about Spielberg, it's about the act- the Fablemans itself. Yeah, I think it's about the movie. But, like, it's happened to him so many times with Lincoln and with The Post and with West Side Story that, like, is it not also about Spielberg himself? Well, it depends on the the year, right? I mean, Jane Campion was winning last year. I think sure. that was that was nothing was going to get in her way. Um, certainly, you could say that there was. That's what I mean. Is it reminds me of the Lincoln year, where there is this weird set of dynamics going on. And the Post was another movie that I just don't think people really cared about, unfortunately. Yeah, it does yeah. feel like West 
West Side Story and Lincoln are the the best examples of when he probably should have won and and didn't because of other circumstances, which I don't know. It just it's it's kind of a bummer that he keeps having films years where there's other weird things going on when we all the time talk about people getting sort of legacy wins, you know, and maybe Spielberg needs a legacy win at this point. I don't know. That sounds sort of insane to say, but yeah. it is wild that he hasn't won in such a long time. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like the thing with like Al Pacino winning for Scent of a Woman, where I'm sure there were people in the room that night in 1993 who were like, no, he's won before, right? Like, I think <laughs> like, the institutional memory is both long and short at the same time. And I think with Spielberg, because the two things he won for were these huge career-defining movies, I think they kind of consider him like set. They're like we've 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 recognized him. But the but the thing is is post Saving Private Ryan, that's when this whole different era of Spielberg began. And yeah. obviously they have the Academy's responded to it with nominations over the years with Lincoln and you know Catch Me If You Can and various other things. Um, but uh, I think maybe it's a little bit harder to embrace this version of Spielberg because he's being more of the art guy and than he was in you know the first two phases of his career roughly and i also think the problem with the fablemans is that other than michelle williams there aren't really big stars in it um Mm -hmm. and it's a small personal story and i can't speak for the academy obviously but to me it feels like that movie came out 10 years ago (laughs) like like it just feels it wasn't sticky post new year you know it just for whatever reason it just hasn't been um kind of top of mind at all um partly because it's not winning things but yeah i mean i guess it did win the globe very weird trajectory for a tiff audience winner too you know a Mm -hmm. movie that announced and very cannily announced its campaign i mean i think that was a really smart way to open that movie by saying audiences love it it's a crowd pleaser because that's always the thing that goes against these more memoristic dramas is will anybody actually care and there seemed to be an initial statement that yes people saw this at a big festival with a bunch of movies that were well liked and they chose this one as their favorite um and then it just never recaptured that level of affection with it you know either with critics or with box office or now with industry groups it's just has yeah i agree with richard it just never really found a place to stick in the conversation beyond it being a widely admired movie when it's the second spielberg movie in a row you just get kind of like boondoggled by box office like west side story just kind of was, was so uh, under attended in 2021 that's when that was um and then fablemans we talked about the box office and went to streaming or not um, to vod and we have no idea how well it did on vod although anecdotal evidence suggests people have seen it there but uh-huh. kind of the narrative stuck whereas everything everywhere all at once and then top gun and various others kind of get to be the um the little engines that could that to make the box office run yeah I get mad on behalf of Tony Kushner, and I don't know how mad he is. Rebecca, you're the one who talked to him. But the Lincoln win was always especially egregious to me, and it bums me out. You know, the original screenplay race has a lot of great contenders, but it bums me out that he and Spielberg are, like, so out of the running for really incredible work. He was nominated for Munich, too. Um, Spielberg's got two Oscars. Tony Kushner has none, and he should have one. 
I was mad on behalf of him when we were talking, but he is not <laughs> mad. He is a, he's a very wonderful man to talk to and very happy and, and says such smart, thoughtful things. So, uh, but we can all be mad for him. <laughs> yeah, I'm always relieved. Um, well, so David, when the Daniels gave their speech, or Daniels, I always, you know, I, I know they're not the Daniels. We can call them by their individual names, maybe. Um, you know, you called it their holy shit moment, which is what I think Dan Kwan said in his speech. Um, I mean, I assume that energy is something that we'll enjoy seeing on an Oscar stage. Should they, in fact, win Best Director there, too? Yeah, I mean, the best part of the night for me was Stephanie Hsu introducing them because it was so unlike any other nominee presentation I've seen at this particular award show. It really reflected the kind of quirky, intimate friendships, I would say, that these directors have fostered with their with their collaborators, and in this case, their actors, um, where she was just being weird and funny on the stage. And, you know, it's not a televised event, but there is still a screen where there are cuts to the audiences. And you could just see how sort of charmed and embarrassed and moved they were by what she was saying. And that I found it just incredibly sweet. And I think a reflection of what people love so much about this movie and this story, which is these two self-described weird guys made a movie that touched a lot of people. And it's taking them a really long way. And I am still not tired of hearing, you know, Dan, you know, Kihi Kwan or Stephanie Hsu or Michelle Yeoh just talk about that experience. Uh, or Jamie Lee Curtis, for that matter. Who is all of us, in case you haven't heard? Oh, <laughs> well, is that our is that our pivot to BAFTAs? <laughs> it's it is. <laughs> um, yeah, we talked about West Side Story. We talked about BAFTAs. I don't have a lot to say about Ariana DeBose's um, viral moment, but we can talk about the awards themselves. Because um, David, you were again on deck to do kind of analysis of the BAFTAs, um, which went really hard for All Quiet on the Western Front, as we might have guessed from the tally of nominations that it got over there. Um, and you know, I guess I've now come to thinking that you're right that uh, it had momentum to maybe get Edward Berger in that best director lineup. Um, but BAFTAs can go their own way sometimes. Um, so totally. how much are we supposed to make of all this? Hmm. Um, it's a very obvious BAFTA winner in retrospect, just given what they've gone for in the past. But there, there will come a point with this movie when we have to say, it just keeps racking up these insane nomination tallies. It has now proven it can win an immense amount of awards from a major, major voting body and say, this is, this movie is in it. Um, so I came away from it thinking, you know, not ready to say it's going to win best picture, but I think it's probably going to win best adapted screenplay. I think it, it, it makes sense as the winner there. I, I love women talking. I think it's still in it, but I just don't think it's as strong as an overall player. And when you have the entire Academy voting, it helps to be a movie that a lot of people have clearly gotten behind. Based, Everyone knows it's based on a book because everyone knows about the book. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then on the other side of that, uh, as we, as I mentioned, he won Best Director, which I, I just think proves that race is very unclear. There is really no challenger right now of the nominees to Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. So um, at this point, I, you know, you kind of have to predict them by default. But the fact that Banshees was able to win multiple acting awards, which maybe someone else can take in terms of what that meant, but not picture director tells me that movie is probably does not have what it takes to win best picture or director. I mean, I really felt like All Quiet also needed this kind of night because we're not going to see them at PJ, obviously, DJ, we didn't, and SAG, where they're not nominated. Mm -hmm. So 
by next week, we may be like, what happened to El Collider on the Western Front? It was so quiet from them. But um, because, you know, they missed out on some of the guild noms. But this was such a big night for them. And it's hard to ignore that. I mean, I think from the beginning, lots of us, lots of other awards, um, people sort of underestimated this film. And you really can't at this point. And I think something that I don't remember if it was Berger or one of the producers at BAFTAs, you know, I don't think they were being shrewd or calculating. I think they were speaking from the heart, but they they kind of brought up the film's thematic parallels to things going on right now with people ginned up by right-wing propaganda rushing into war. So people were thinking about Ukraine. In some ways, that makes us think about the U.S. Um, I think it's important that people have a line to draw from this World War One movie to now um, to give the film that sense of like nowness and urgency. And so if people were paying attention to those BAFTA speeches, and I'm sure that people, plenty of people in the Academy were both obviously in that room, but also watching from afar. I don't know. I think that that helps make the case for all quiet. And, you know, we see a lot of picture director splits. So I could see the Daniels winning and then something like all quiet being more of a consensus favorite than everything everywhere, which, you know, people laugh at the hot dog fingers and they, you know, whatever else. But I think that there are definitely enough people who are going to turn their nose up at that movie in the end, that um, something as sturdy and reliable as a anti-war epic, even though it's kind of revels in horrible imagery for, uh, you know, that's that's tried and true in a lot of ways. Although 1917 couldn't pull it out. So I don't know. The, The way I always like to think of the Academy right now is Green Book and Parasite winning in back-to-back years. <laughs> there are different wings, and there are different wings that can take hold of a, of a given year. Um, and while um, All Quiet is, in many ways, it looks like um, a more mainstream choice in some ways than everything everywhere, and it can reflect a kind of influence shift toward that wing, uh, I wonder if it can also just more broadly indicate the search for an alternative. And so if you get to something like PGA, because as Rebecca said, there is no ability to vote for All Quiet until the Oscars. Um, I think it makes Top Gun look like an interesting alternative. I still am kind of on that train a little bit. It was never going to be a BAFTA movie. It wasn't in competition for best film anyway. Um, So it would have its own huge statistical challenge to overcome because that is very rare for a film to win best picture without a BAFTA nomination. Um, but yeah, it just proves that this field is open and that there are voters who are looking elsewhere. Um, cause I think, as we said last week, this is not going to be a simple race. I think everything everywhere is still ahead, but the guilds next week will say a lot about just how far ahead everything everywhere is and who another potential challenger might be. I think also in some ways it's helpful to all quiet that people don't immediately think of it as a Netflix movie. Because yeah. it wasn't yeah. the movie that Netflix was beating the drum for back in August, September. You know, those movies went, just completely fell off the map. You know, talk about White Noise and um, Bardo. Bardo. Oscar-nominated Bardo. but It yes. is Oscar-nominated, that's true. <laughs> um, it got somewhere. And All Quiet, you know, they, they brought it to Toronto. There were plenty of PR emails in the lead up to that festival being like, hey, come see the, an early screening and whatever. Like, there was, a, there was movement behind All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm not saying that Netflix completely ignored it, but it certainly was not one of their top tier entries. And um, so I think because of that in the months since, even though people, a lot of people are watching it on Netflix, I don't think they quite think of it the same way that like Roma and the Irishman, et cetera, were so definitionally like, like 
Netflix movies. And um, so, I don't know, in a weird way, like, Netflix could win Best Picture for a movie that they never intended to win Best Picture. I hate to compare anything to Andrea Riseborough, but I do think there is something similar here about voters feeling like they discovered this film really organically yes. uh, yeah. and outside of a campaign machine. Now, of course, you have Netflix completely all in and <laughs> throwing huge events and getting the word out there as much as possible for the movie. I'm not gonna. I'm not saying it's going to work against it, but it is th- that dynamic has really shifted, uh, and I, I I wonder if it only helps it now that enough people have seen it, or if that discovery factor will fade away. I thought we were going to get through a whole episode without the rice barrel scandal <laughs> nope, coming up. <laughs> nope, it's part of the DNA. Theme now. of 2022. <laughs> well, season. I prepared a sing rap about it, Rebecca. So, <laughs> um. Um, I mean, I think there there is a possibility in the coming weeks that Everything Everywhere could win GGA, SAG, PGA, and WGA, or three of four, or something like that, which would make me feel very confident in its best picture. But I do think this race is been so wild that that is not going to happen but it it would be a clear sign that it it's going to lock best picture but we'll see there there is emotion in all quite on the western front like it's very overwhelming movie in a lot of ways but i don't think there's anything in it that compares to the real emotional highs of everything everywhere that have made it linger so long like i've been seeing these ads on my twitter feed sponsored that say it's like like a picture of I think all three of the family members like hugging and it says something like everything has led to this or this moment. And it just has that like emotional pull that that Coda had and that Parasite in its own way had. And I have a heart. I, I feel like that power has been really strong in Best Picture races in recent years. And I have a hard time seeing All Quiet matching that, even with all of its technical achievements. Yeah, that's the challenge. Um, and everything everywhere just still has a very clear path. And it has all the technical achievements, too, like way more than Coda did. You know, it's Mm -hmm. got like it could win best editing. Absolutely. I hope it does. It deserves it. Yeah. I think, you know, I don't uh, the Academy has made strides on this front in recent years. But like, yes, there's a lot of emotion and everything everywhere, Katie, but it's women. And all quiet on the Western Front is tough, sad war boys. You know, like sad. That is so (laughs) like familiar. It's half the films in any Oscar night montage are war films, you know? Um, and I don't know. I, I don't think that All Quiet would then represent some kind of regression on the Academy's part because it has its own very modern technicals and all that stuff. The Netflix of it all, the fact that it's a foreign language film, you know, that still feels kind of revolutionary a few years after Parasite. But there is that thing of like, will the sort of smaller softer aspects of everything everywhere resound uh, for, old, let's say, older Academy members in the same way that, like, you know, the young men walk, marching off to doom, you know, in the war. Sure. We've looked at BAFTA in the last few years as the show that's really moved the needle in the Oscar race of, of all of them. And this year, it could be a very different story because I, I think Kihi Kwan is still, you know, the overwhelming frontrunner to win Best Supporting Actor, although it was so nice to see Barry Keoghan actually get to win something because he is so wonderful in that movie. And we've been talking about that clip that went viral on Twitter. And he's had a real moment, um, which is nice to see. Um, and that's kind of a good role that BAFTA can play is elevating some homegrown talent and you know changing the conversation up a little bit before Kihi Kwan rightly marches to Oscar. 
Um, I think supporting actress is a little close, to be honest, just because Angela Bassett is on her own representing a Marvel movie that the voters didn't seem to care about above the line otherwise. They really didn't care about it at BAFTA. Yeah, which, I mean, <laughs> as, we've, as we've seen, um, almost slash all of the winners were white, um, and they have their own serious issues to dig into there. Um, but even beyond that, I just think there are a lot of challenges for Angela Bassett that I think she can still overcome. Like, I think she'll still win SAG. And, but Carrie Condon's an interesting, you know, alternative there. Um, and then lead acting races, Colin Farrell, that was where he needed to win. He did not. I think Austin Butler's got it pretty much in the bag um, at this point. And Cate Blanchett has still not lost. And so it's, it's just hard for me to predict against her. Yeah, the Carrie Condon thing is interesting. Like, because we've, I think we've talked about it before already, but like, the everything everywhere people cancel each other out. Maybe people just can't, at, at, the, at the very last minute, they just can't vote for a Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and then there's Carrie Condon right there. Um, that I think is its clearest path. Like, because I, I mean, it, but it'll win screenplay probably too, Banshees will. Maybe unless it's in everything, yeah. Unless it's in everything, a very sweet. He can't. He can win. So it's possible that Condon could be the best hope that that, that Banshees has to win anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is it's wild. so yeah. wild. Yeah, that is. I mean, Richard, you a few moments ago you said you know everything everywhere has this difficulty because it's yes, it's an emotional story, but centered on women, but it's also centered on you know an almost all Asian cast. And I look at these BAFTA winners and, you know, there are a couple people wrote about how white the winners almost all white were. And and we know that BAFTA made a real effort to diversify its membership and change the way it did voting a, a few years ago. And the Academy has done the same, but there are still hurdles. And I, I think about that a lot when I, I think about what Everything Everywhere is actually going to win come Oscar night. I just feel like it still raises questions for me about how big those hurdles might be for actual wins because BAFTAs was not great. <laughs> and the yeah. nominees were super diverse. So that was actually exciting. And then the winners were just yeah. all white. This is my big problem with their new nominating system is for someone who does not know the incredibly strange and intricate way in which these, these lists are decided upon, you see Gina Prince-Bythewood and you see Daryl McCormick and all these folks who have been nominated. And you there is this illusion of things have vastly improved in this organization. And they have not. These nominations are almost certainly, based on the winner's list, were decided by very small juries. Um, and it's just a completely different system that does not in any way reflect the actual tastes or tendencies of the BAFTA membership. Um, the Oscars don't have that problem. They nominated far fewer people of color. <laughs> they have their issues are more plainly visible, I suppose. Um, but it, it it does give this sense of BAFTA gets through the nominations phase, and it's a really interesting list. And we can you know applaud the fact that they were the only group say to nominate Gina Prince Bythewood in a major way. And then you get to the winners, and it's like what? <laughs> Not one. I mean, it really is. It's a shocking shift. But it makes complete sense based on the way that they vote. It just happens to be kind of deceptive. And perhaps that was not more glaring on the Baptist broadcast than, I forget what the award's called. Is it Breakthrough Performer? Is it Newcomer or whatever? Rising New Star, I think. Rising New Star. And there were a lot of great 
interesting actors in there. And then Emma Mackey, also an interesting, good actor, you know, won. And it was just like, oh, God, guys. Like, it just, yeah, yeah, it just every single time they had an opportunity to, and I'm not saying that there was any sort of quota. This was great work that could have won, you know, and uh, throughout the whole evening. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, yeah, it, it sort of reflected the... The tastes of BAFTA that are the, the biases of, of BAFTA um, that, yeah, are not evident because of this weird new system where um, they put up this kind of smokescreen of interesting nominees, but, <laughs> you know, all for naught in the end. I think, as always, we get kind of caught between talking about, like, overall trends that are worrisome and then the individual winners. And I think we'd all agree that, like, the overall picture of the BAFTA winners is distressing, but I was also really happy to see Barry Keoghan and Carrie Condon win awards. Like, I don't like, I don't think it's taking away from that to talk about this kind of overall issue. Um, And I think I share your concern, Rebecca, that like this could indicate that there is uh, only so far a movie with an all Asian cast can go, which is a really depressing thought after, you know, everything that movie has achieved. Um, But I hope that it's not. I hope this is a chance for people who are not going to win Oscars probably to have a moment, uh, which is what I was hoping would happen for Colin Farrell. um, And then we can, you know, the Oscar race can continue as it has been. Yeah, BAFTA gets it wrong. So, so you know, they get they get their own choice. Not wrong. Yes, wrong. They they don't match up with the Oscars so often. It's very nice to have a a night where we're all texting each other like, "What is going on?" But um, it does not mean this is what we're going to see at the Oscars. So we all just need to sort of remember that when everyone's looking at these headlines. We do have SAG coming up this weekend. I mean, we'll talk about it next week. Um, I don't imagine that they will match up with the BAFTA winners. Um, I guess if Austin Butler wins at SAG, then it really is sewn up. But, you know, I can see something else happening there still. Brendan Fraser's still out there. Yeah, it's four of the five same nominees, right? So I think that race is one to really watch that night because it will tell us almost everything it feels like. See, I I feel like I I don't actually think it was that close. This has been my (laughs) whole thing about this race is I needed to see who would win BAFTA, but I think Austin Butler has it. I think actress is more interesting at SAG. I think Michelle Yeoh could win there, even with Kate dominating so far. Um, but I, yeah, I, I just Elvis is very clearly that performance is very clearly ahead for this group for this industry. I just seems pretty obvious to me, sadly. David, I am trying to keep hope alive here. <laughs> I think also, uh, you know, Rebecca, you've spoken about like never wanting to be a front runner at this point, and like yeah. with Blanchett, it's like I don't know. Are, are, is, is everyone, anyone else, getting sick of watching her give acceptance <laughs> speeches? Like, <laughs> like maybe just for the sake of like shaking that up, uh, you know, if nothing else, Michelle Yeoh could could pull ahead. But I think that the Quan anomaly at the Baptist, which is like the first thing, it's kind of the first thing he's lost, right? Like, yeah, yeah, um, throughout the entire season. Um, I, I I kind of think acting wise he'll be the sort of emissary for that film, but we'll see. I did find it very interesting that Kate gave such a relatively emotional, heartfelt, coherent speech at the Baftas after her far more rambly and I don't want to say indifferent, but near indifferent speech at the Critics Choice Awards, uh, <laughs> where she mentioned uh, what name did she mention in that speech, David? It was Andrea Riceboro. <laughs> it was. Um, it kind of reminded me of Jane Campion when she won the Critics Choice, and obviously that was a disaster. Yeah, Kate, Kate would do much better in that circumstance. I would say. Um, but it, the Critics Choice Awards is where you you test it out; it doesn't go well, and then you, you get mm-hmm. on message. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we think Angela Bassett wins at SAG? Probably. I think so, yeah. If she doesn't, we're, she's in real, I think, real yeah. trouble. I mean, 
maybe Hong Chao wins. Maybe it really gets thrown in a whole new direction. I was so happy to see Dolly De Leon at BAFTAs just as a sidebar. She had this amazing dress. She didn't get Oscar nominated despite Triangle Sadness performing so well at the Oscars. And um, I was just happy to see her. That's all. Yeah. She'll probably go to the Oscars, right? For the I movie? hope so. I hope so. It's criminal she wasn't nominated. It's... I mean, you're going to give it Best Picture nomination and not recognize the most interesting performance in that movie. Like, so it's just, But also yeah. the Best Supporting Actress. Supporting Actress category is so strong. Like, it's hard to... Yeah. I don't know who I'm going to throw out of there um, for Dolly De Leon. Yeah. If the, all the women talking women got shut out, you know, like a lot of people <laughs> were going to get shut out. Like, it was yeah. just... Yeah. It was yeah. crowded. It was a good year. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Review's Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, that does it for the present. We're now going to go jump back to the past and um, look back at the 2003 Oscars with Joe Reed and Chris File. Well, for the flashback portion of today's episode, we are now joined by our returning guests and friends, the co-hosts of the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, Joe Reed and Chris File. Hello. Are you ready to go back to 2003? I'm deeply ready. I, I, I've never been more ready. <laughs> you so, live ready. Yeah. It would yes. be the wrong ceremony, but I almost said, are you ready to go back to Titanic? Well, um, that's, sort of, that's sort of where I was headed with that. Yeah. Happy here to be talking with, talking with our friends, uh, Richard, Rebecca, David, and of course, Catherine. <sighs> like Kathy Bates. I really thought for a second there, maybe that was my Oscar. Uh, I think time. Kathy Bates thought it. I think she goes, huh? Like, <laughs> she does a full look to the left, yeah. look to the right before realizing what's happening. Um, we have done these Oscar flashbacks for a couple years now. I think this is the first time that we've really sat down and all watched the ceremony together. And Richard, in a couple weeks, you'll have your traditional recap of the ceremony with um, an increasingly deranged series of screenshots, I believe is the actual tradition. Um, and yeah. now I, I can see how much fun it is for you while also making you go slowly insane. 
this year's recap is only going to be, it's going to be 182 gifts of Sharon Stone's AOL ad. And then maybe I'll mention who won Uh at the very end. (laughs) (laughs) uh sharon stone is the recurring uh mascot of your oscar recap it's just those aol ads i mean so joe we get these um you know uh, vhs tapes of the oscars basically uh via you and they come with the ads which i promise not to spend too much time talking about the ads but holy moly the 2003 ads were an experience yeah shout out to my friend nick davis who one at one point just gave me all of his uh ripped to ripped from vhs (laughs) oscar ceremonies and i've been uh dining out on them ever since but yeah like I'm a sucker for TV commercials in old recordings of things anyway, but like what a what a set of ads between the Spike Lee directed Carmen a hip hopera Pepsi ad for Beyonce and uh and then yeah, Sharon Stone in bed with the AOL mascot. It was quite a time. Um, so before we get really too into the nitty gritty of the ceremony, which I think we all want to do, I, we should set up this Oscar race in general. This is the uh, movies of 2002, the 2003 ceremony um, aired five days after the Iraq war started, which we'll certainly talk about. Uh, and David, you did a deep dive into this Oscar race for a piece for our um, Phase 2 Awards issue about the hours specifically, um, the hours of beloved topic among all of us on this show, um, and kind of getting into the stakes of this and maybe why Harvey Weinstein is completely inescapable as you watch the broadcast. Um, do you do you, do you want to do the job of kind of setting up the stakes of this of this year's race? Sure. I mean, this is sort of the peak of his run, right? I mean, he had two of the five Best Picture nominees really to himself in Gangs of New York and Chicago, which won Best Picture. And he was a co-maker of the hours and sort of had a very intense uh, push and pull with Scott Rudin over the making of and campaigning for that film, and particularly Nicole Kidman, who won Best Actress. Uh, spoiler alert. But this was also, you know, in my reporting over the course of many months over this movie and this campaign, it, this was also a moment when he, as one strategist put it to me, started getting caught with his tactics. And so there was a lot of, I mean, there are a few jokes in the ceremony along the way of the kinds of stunts he pulls. Um, and you see in the campaign for the hours, particularly just the Weinstein machine and the Rudin machine, both in full effect. And uh, even as it was more of Rudin's campaign, it's a good microcosm of the way that they worked. Yeah, when Michael Schulman was on a few weeks ago, he talked about the Saving Private Ryan versus Shakespeare in Love year as kind of emblematic of um, the Harvey Weinstein dirty tricks. And I think at that Oscar ceremony, you saw a lot of jokes about it. The Beautiful Mind year, of course, had been like right the year before this. And this year it was maybe a little subtler or maybe it was just like he was so in such a dominant position, like no one felt like they needed to comment on it as much. Like he was just so part of the firmament in this year's race. Yeah, you're coming off of the Beautiful Mind year in which that was the smear campaign, essentially, about the real-life subject of that film, uh, John Nash. And so this was a year in which he played it safer, and he also had a contender in Chicago that was so beloved and so less problematic to get behind and less problematic for him to push really heavily. So those things kind of aligned for him, where he didn't have the kind of campaign infrastructure campaign situation where he had to make a kind of turn or make, you know, employ a kind of tactic that would be more controversial. Well, what's also so fascinating about that is so many of those races came down to two top contenders from Harvey-backed projects, right? Where exactly. like the, the biggest threat to Kidman winning was Renee Zellweger, who I believe won SAG that year and sort of mm-hmm. had everybody kind she of did. worried that, well, worried, I say worried because I was... <laughs> Rooting for Kidman, um, that that she would win, but even like Best Director, 
even though Polanski ends up winning, it seemed for for most of that race that it was Scorsese or Rob Marshall. Um, I believe Rob that, Marshall won DGA as well. He did. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was a situation of he had all these contenders in his pocket, essentially, and there was this building sense of the pianist gaining steam and him sort of trying to outrun it, and in a couple places, evidently, uh, unsuccessfully. I don't want to put yeah. anyone on the spot because I don't know who prepped for this, but the the love for the pianist, which I lived through and remember, and I remember this Oscar ceremony well, is kind of hard to understand watching <laughs> these Oscars now 20 years later. Like when Roman Polanski wins Best Director, there's this he's not there, obviously. There's this huge standing ovation. I mean, it looked like Meryl Streep was standing on her chair. I don't know if she actually was. <laughs> There's a lot of, like, video evidence of, like, support for a demonstrably bad man. Yeah. 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 It, Scorsese like, jumping out of his it seat. It feels yeah. like a standing ovation to potentially, though, block any protest in a way. It seems kind of preemptive, like, because people had booed Michael Moore earlier in the evening, right? And yeah. um, so the, the crowd right. was kind of worked up, ready for controversy, and... Um, I don't know. I, I think a lot of pe- the the big like Scorsese and other what, people standing up was like, "Don't you dare! Don't you dare!" This is you know mm-hmm. this is Polanski we're talking about. Um, it's a weird weird moment. I mean, I'm sure that there was plenty of protests going around, but it felt like just such an assumed thing. Like, ah, yes, we will re- we will reward this master, even though he is legally not allowed to travel to the United States. And like uh, among the like a list that was at the front of the show, there was just like so little dissent there. I was even looking at like reporting from the time and it just sort of says he wasn't there and doesn't even explain yeah. why it's just the tone mm-hmm. is so baffling if now when you think about that a fugitive won an award i don't know it's just mind-blowing i remember being at the time though that there was a lot more of a sense of you could at least take the position of defending an artist against you know, almost like state action kind of a thing, and that, you know, uh, Mm. let Roman work, that kind of a thing, was at least something that artists felt empowered to get behind in a way that you wouldn't today. The combination of Polanski, the Harvey Weinstein, Scott Rudin of it all, and these occasional commercial breaks where Peter Jennings is talking about the Iraq war that had just started days prior. This is like a really cursed, dark ceremony. Uh, in a way that uh, I certainly didn't remember it being because I was sort of living in it in the moment and didn't sort of didn't have that perspective. But like watching it back, like I'm just going to say it's going to be hard to make a funny recap of this <laughs> of this ceremony. Well, it in the video that we have of it, you know, there's actual breaks to news coverage of the invasion happening you know in commercial breaks of the ceremony um and you can really just feel from the get-go a real trepidation and tension in the room about how much to say how obliquely to say it because you have throughout the night obviously it gets more explicit as like michael uh more kind of burst the dam open um but you know you have oblique references to peace and you know uh even colin farrell introducing you two kind of has this uh like selectively chosen wording of what he's trying to say but so clearly trying to make a comment about the war that's happening well and there's almost a sense of all of the winners at least felt like they had a responsibility to say something and I think you saw that in, like, especially, like, in Kidman's acceptance speech, which, like, I think is generally wonderful, and I have no, you know, I love Nicole Kidman. But it felt like at the end she was like, oh, and before I forget, yeah. now I need to say something about this. But she didn't really quite know what to say, so she kind of 
fumbled around her words. I think other people fared better. I thought Gael Garcia Bernal said something very sort of lovely about, you know, if Frida Kahlo were alive today, she would be, you know, on our side against war. Adrian Brody sandwiched in between the weirdness of him, like, forcing that kiss on Halle Berry in a way that looks worse and worse every year. Who sure does. But he ends up having something, you know, actually one of the better sort of comments on the war. But there was certainly this sense of we need to justify why we're doing an Oscars. And that sort of typical hand-wringing of like, oh, should we have an Oscars when things are bad? Like that kind of a thing. Um, It's also the perfect storm of having, it's the 75th, and so you have all these old heads in there, Ernest Borgnine, who famously hated sure. Brokeback Mountain a couple of years later, like all these old crusty assholes who are like definitely pro-war or pro-America or whatever. And so, it, you know, it just, it, it's crazy that, that this sort of celebratory, we're the Oscars, yay, you know, let's have a montage of montages and whatever, coincided with a, a, a geopolitical horror <laughs> unfolding in yes. real time. Well, and one of the things that I found so striking was one of the sort of refrains that people kind of settled on as safe ground in a way that, like, how do I oppose war but support the troops was people wishing for a swift resolution to the war, which all these years later feels so dark to look at that. It was just like people really hoping that, like, this would be finished soon in this, like, you know, decades-long morass of everything that went on there. So that was striking to say the least. Uh, Richard, you mentioned montages. Uh, This is just jumping right into the nitty gritty, but oh my God, there's so many montages in these Oscars and I (laughs) loved every single one of them. There are two in the red carpet show before the Oscars actually begin. I swear there was a montage of Academy presidents speaking at the Oscars. There was. It's unbelievable. And Richard, you've watched a lot of these for us over the years. Like, is this just me forgetting that every single show was like this? Or was 2003 really the the high watermark for montages? Well, this was the Diamond Jubilee. You know, this was 75. And so they were really going to go yeah. all out. They also had that year. I mean, I guess this was more true of Oscar ceremonies regularly back then. But like huge blockbusters campaigning for Best Picture, like it, very big movie stars. It all felt very grand. You know, um, which in a normal year, okay, sure, like, it's their show, they can celebrate themselves if they want. Um, This level of montage, which I think might be a little excessive when you get to, (laughs) here's a clip of, um, you know, the past Academy presence, or here's a montage of past supporting actor winners before we give the supporting actor out. Like, it just, you know, it adds to runtime. But it's the juxtaposition between that and what was happening in the room. Um, which there were some bad things happening in that room. I mean, Scott Rudin versus Harvey Weinstein. That's where Alien vs. Predator got their tagline, whoever wins the movie, <laughs> by the way. It would come out the next year. Um, you know, I, so I think that watching it now, the montages to me feel excessive and kind of grotesque. But um, at the moment, I'm sure it was just kind of like, yay, Oscars. I don't know. And the Academy President's montage was pretty late into the show. So when Frank Pearson is like, <laughs> let's look back at other Academy, it's like, now? I, 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 I remember incorrectly, it happens after Best Actor. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, they do. this is because they did the Oscars Family Album. All the acting awards got pushed forward in the ceremony. I almost appreciated the Academy President montage because it's one of those things where, like, the Academy, at least back then, the Academy President would come out and say their spiel every year no matter what. Whereas, like, this time we're going to at least, like, throw a little zazz into it and, like, turn it into a, you know, a patchwork of other people saying it. And it... 
does go by quickly enough, but it is like on paper, a montage of Academy presidents sounds insane. <laughs> These days, they barely let the Academy president exactly. say anything. And if they do, they're apologizing for something. The Academy Museum does have that animatronic hall of presidents, though. Yeah, they finally got them all in one place. Um, Just the the unapologetic nature of all those montages and the Oscar family album and like even some of the speeches. I mean, people get played off by the orchestra. That was absolutely happening by then. But it's just it's really striking watching from the present day vantage point. I think this show comes in under four hours, you know, Mm -hmm. not crazy by Oscar standards. Um, And like, but it's the tone throughout the whole thing. Like Steve Martin is a self-deprecating host. We can certainly get into the tone of many of his jokes, but... But he is funny and he is kind of willing to take some of the air out of the balloon without doing the more standard kind of thing, being like, I'm so sorry we're here. I'm so sorry we're on your television. We'll try to make this quick. Yeah. He kind of – he pokes at the the vanity a little bit in a way that feels like it's threading a, a needle. He the, he had an early joke about um, all the proceeds from this ceremony will be divvied up between large corporations. And it's one of those things where it's just like that's, you know, obviously, you know, a, a sharp – poking the ribs or whatever, but it also kind of a little bit lets the air out of the balloon in in a way, like you said, without being like, God, we all hate ourselves for being here. <laughs> like <laughs> in a way that certain modern Oscar ceremonies feel very embarrassed of itself. Yeah. Well, maybe we can talk, talk about Steve Martin then, because I did, I just took so many notes about like every joke that he got to, because it was either like cringy or a time warp or kind of both. Um, I mean, Rebecca, you've been in the room at these Oscars, like, does any of the tone of what he's striking at the beginning uh, ring a bell for a current day? Does it all feel like from a different era? I feel like it it parallels what we can sort of expect from Kimmel a, a, a bit. Um, I, I mean, that first joke he makes at Harvey's expense where he's, you know, alluding to his hinting at his uh, campaign tactics. I was just like, wow, Kimmel can make a joke about campaign tactics here in, in the same year. So it just feels <laughs> it like... It's actually gone away. <laughs> you can tell how history repeats itself with some of his jokes. I found his I found his jokes great. I thought, I thought as, as Joe was saying, it sort of strikes that balance really well about not apologizing for being there in the first place. He's the only one to take a shot at Polanski, too. I did yeah. not, you know what I mean? Yeah. When the, the, Roman Polanski's here, get him. Like, that's, that's, that's a such joke. a good joke. I mean, we should talk about all the jokes he makes about beautiful women because that continues yep. through oh, yeah. the entire There's show. One cut to Jennifer Lopez that is just tough to see, to watch. Was oh, that the one where she and Ben kind of look at each other? Like, yeah. what yeah. the fuck is happening? Yes. <laughs> I yeah. took a screenshot of that. But as a true believer in their love, I thought that was a great sign that they can weather anything <laughs> together. He makes a joke about double-sided tape coming off with saliva about yes, talking that's what it was. and you're like what the fuck is going on like i don't think of steve martin as that guy because we've had 20 years of him since then where he isn't really that guy but the tone of those jokes and they are myriad is i mean they're not funny for one thing and i don't know if i would have found them funny then maybe i would have i mean I, I i can't pretend that i was you know as enlightened now uh as i was then <laughs> uh or no flip that but um yeah it again adds a sour note to the proceedings i think i thought that the joke about the the nine box of people who had slept with him before was like that's the one i remember and that's the one yeah. i was like oh yeah like that's why i have you know fond memories of steve martin as an oscar host the other ones i guess it all slipped out of my mind well there's like the one about the nine box which like gets funny because julie andrews plays along and then ted dance and mary steamburgen play along and then the one right before that where it's talking about like Harrison Ford is an exemplar of a straight actor and then it cuts to Jack Nicholson being like and actors can be gay and Jack yes. Nicholson I mean the gay mm-hmm. jokes are 
There's crazy. so many gay jokes. So many. And we have Vanity Fair to blame for that, you know. Oh, my Be- God. Yeah, wait, Richard, do you want to explain the gay mafia? <laughs> so the, the one-time super agent, Michael Ovitz, who founded CAA and then tried to switch over to Disney under Eisner and had a disastrous tenure, and then his career was essentially over, he gave an interview to Vanity Fair right before I mean, uh, in the months leading up to this year's, uh, to 2003's Oscars, um, where he blamed a lot of his downfall on people like David Geffen and other members of what he deemed the gay mafia uh, in Hollywood controlling the purse strings. It's it's similar to how people talk about other groups now or then and, you know, still whatever. Um, and so that, that term was very much in the air. And I thought the Jack Nicholson joke was funny in a way because Jack Nicholson is famously the straightest man on the planet. Um, <laughs> but... He's the perfect recipient for that joke, yeah. But put him in that box of nine people then. M- make the joke again. I, I slept, sure, you yeah. know, here are the people I slept with uh, and-, and put Jack Nicholson in there, which I felt was a missed opportunity. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, if you haven't ever read the original Gay Mafia story uh, with Michael Ovitz, I-, I read it for the first time after this ceremony because I went down such a rabbit hole. It's, it's an incredible story. You would never, ever, ever hear an executive uh, give <sighs> quotes like this. Now, probably because of this article, um, go find it in the uh, in the archives. <sighs> I also felt that that um, Colin Farrell joke that he makes oh, God, was yeah. just, in hindsight, it's just rough. And even the way Farrell reacts in the moment. Do you want to is, recount what, what, what the joke is? Yeah, I mean, he's basically makes a joke about how the, the line is next stop rehab. And yeah. then Colin Farrell literally walks out and he says something along the lines of, it's closer to the truth than you may think. And I believe yeah. two years or so later, he went, check, he was checking to rehab. So <sighs> it's a, you know, those kinds of jokes that you don't hear anymore on an Oscar stage are for reasons exactly like this. Like, oh, that. Well, <laughs> and nowadays too, like that joke gets made and it's like five straight days of churning it through the mill of. Yeah. You know, was it okay to say that? And blah, blah, blah. And meanwhile, like in the moment, Colin Farrell comes out real amped up <laughs> to yeah. introduce uh, uh, Bono and you too. And as I uh, texted uh, some of you guys uh, last night, it's very much has just had sex hair because, like, it was. Uh, <laughs> That's what he was doing in 2003, Joe. Very <laughs> Colin Farrell 2003. Uh, the cast of Daredevil really all over the place. Uh, it is a very Oscars. Daredevil Oscars. <laughs> very. And it had opened like a month earlier and was already, maybe it's less of a flop than I remember it being, but it's just all over the place. I remember it being a big deal. I think critics kind of hated it, but I don't I don't remember it being like a huge financial flop, although correct me if I'm wrong. Well, for a movie at 20 years ago released in February probably has a different expectation than a superhero movie released in February in this year. Yeah. Man, speaking of jokes that just I mean, I don't want to like pin Adrian Brody to the wall because I think that's happened enough. Like it's not a revelation to say that moment's gross, but what he's does anyone remember what he said after he kisses Halle Berry? About that wasn't in the gift bag or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Bet you didn't, yeah. Oh my god! And then they cut to her again. I know. Was like, well, well and that's and that second cut to her is when you can tell like she was not she yes. was not cool with that and yeah. and that makes it all seem all the worse. And it's too bad because, like I said, he says the thing about the war, which I do think it was like one of the better statements about that. But also, Definitely. when he wins, when he's announced as a winner, it's one of the more genuinely gobsmacked and really. He's like really affected by the fact that he won. It's such a surprise and it's such a lovely moment. And I remember watching that and being like, oh, maybe this whole moment is like not as bad as I remember Mm. it being. And then he gets up and then he sort of like it really is this very forceful 
my kiss. And I was just like, ah, oh, you ruined it. You ruined such a lovely moment of, you know, this genuine joy that I love when like people who win an Oscar weren't expecting to. And it's complicated. I don't know. Especially because there had been so many jokes by Martin mostly leading up to that about how hot Halle Berry is. And he says, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. she's the first actress to win Best Actress who's hot or something. It's like, you know, she had just had this monumental achievement um, right. that has not been right. repeated since. Uh, and all she was reduced to a year later was uh, hot and someone I can just grab and kiss without any sort of, you know, pre-planning or consent or whatever. And that's just yeah. a real bummer. And for it to be a Roman Polanski movie that he's winning for, it just, yeah. 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 Well, and the pianist, Katie, you sort of alluded to this earlier, but it really is, of those five Best Picture nominees, it's the one that's faded the most. Mm-hmm. And it's the one that, at the time, the the sort of push behind it was, this movie is important, and this is, you know, this was the one that, like, voters got behind because of this very sort of weighty subject matter, and it was announcing this big new acting talent in Adrian Brody, and you at least at the time, really didn't get the sense that this was going to be this like flash in the pan movie. And now in 2023, it is by far the one that people talk about the least of those five nominees. Yep. Yeah, we talked about Chicago on this show a couple of years ago um, when Chris Murphy came on to bring it as a flashback. I've rewatched The Hours for you, Joe Reed, uh, for your birthday a couple of years ago. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I was curious about the, P- the pianist and then also Gangs of New York, which was such an interesting like artifact to see as part of this. Did it Did it pull an Irishman? Did it get a, nom- a ton of nominations and zero wins? Yep. Yeah. I think they got the same amount of nominations as The Irishman. That's so yeah. funny. Does anyone have any vivid memories of Gangs of New York at all? I remember the lead up to Gangs of New York because that was a movie that was delayed a whole entire year because it was uh, they were struggling to get it in under four hours. It eventually made it into theaters, I believe, two and a half hours, maybe 245. And it just having this huge kind of build up to it. And then, you know, nobody outright disliked that movie. But I do think there was kind of an air of disappointment that surrounded that kind of movie it's certainly not enough enthusiasm for it to really win anywhere except for daniel day lewis who was kind of neck and neck with jack nicholson all season um well the scorsese campaign though was vocal and active and mm-hmm. people really wanted this was sort of the first time that i had remembered that i remember hearing the we got to get martin scorsese an oscar it's time like that was yeah. when that really first started to crest and then it would happen again with the aviator two years later um, and people really thought that, you know, even with everything, people didn't quite know how to take that movie. There were parts of it, like DiCaprio's performance was not well-received. Uh, Cameron Diaz's performance was not well-received. And yet, given that set of nominees especially, people still sort of looked at it and was like, we got to give it to Scorsese for this one. Well, it was it was Harvey. I mean, that was Harvey's number one push. Yeah. The one that took the most work from that year. And... As the season went on, and it just became clear that there was not a lot of passion for the movie, there was not a lot of love for it, um, that's when he sort of got a little nuts about The Pianist, because it was the movie that could take away what he felt was the clear lane to get Martin Scorsese the best director win. And so he, yeah, he completely created that narrative, and that was the clearest example of this campaign cycle where he just plastered ads all over the place. This was the Ray Y scandal. Everything sort of coalescing around a narrative that he was creating that just did not match how the Academy actually felt. 
I think the Gangs of New York is probably, for me, most notable as it's the only movie to date that Cameron Diaz uses her real accent in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because we talk about the great art year for Irish actors this year. But, I mean, 20 years ago, Cameron Diaz was really carrying that flag for her country. Cameron Diaz was chomping on gum from the first moment to the last moment of that Oscars, too. Like, every time they cut to her, she was there was this one moment where she was reacting to... Um, Lose Yourself wins Best Song and Eminem isn't there, robbing us of the moment of Barbara Streisand handing an Oscar to Eminem, which would have been uh, amazing. But uh, his co-writer of the song was there to accept the award and they cut to Cameron Diaz and she's just sort of like chomping our gum and sort of like taking it all in and her kind of like wild hair was really amazing. The smokiest eye you've ever seen in your entire life. I loved it. She's considering it retiring. You know, she's like, maybe in <laughs> 15 years. Um, but I will say in seriousness about Gangs in New York, it's interesting that DiCaprio had that and Catch Me If You Can in the same year. Both films received nominations. He didn't get one for either. Um, and that was clearly the, I mean, obviously he'd gotten a nomination as a, as a kid, essentially a teenager uh, years prior, a decade prior, pretty much. Um, but this year really primes the pump for the the run that, okay, DiCaprio is now becoming overdue. Yeah, what else? So Scorsese being overdue really takes hold then uh, DiCaprio. When you see Renee Zellweger losing, she wins like not too long after, but then Best Actress is still elusive. What what other um, seeds are planted in this? Julianne Moore, because she has the yeah. double nomination this year. And from, you know, you always kind of have the applause meter running for, you know, when the list of nominations are listed for like acting nominations. And I definitely feel like she had the most enthusiastic reaction, um, certainly among that Best Actress lineup, which is kind of interesting. I also noticed that, like, they cut away to Salma Hayek and, and Edward Norton a lot. A lot, and, yeah. Like, that... Frida was really cresting at this point. It wins the score Oscar, and you get the feeling like it probably came, you know, close maybe on, on original song. It won even. another one. And... It won cost... It won, no. Makeup. Yeah. Makeup. Sure, re- makeup, because uh, of... It was only uh, two yeah. nominees. Yeah, yeah, only two nominees, and you get the feeling that it, that it won makeup because most of the voters were just like, ah, well, they drew on the unibrow. Um, <laughs> well, the, the, <laughs> the makeup win, they specifically call her out too, and like her passion and her vision, and saying that they're the reason why she's there, which is like not just you know this was a passion project for her, but she essentially led that Oscar campaign too. You know, Harvey was doing nothing for that movie. Same is actually true of Michael Caine in Quiet American. That was basically. He just led by Michael Caine. Um, plus, also, you know, he's a recent uh, winner again, very beloved. But yeah, that she kind of got called out for being a guiding force behind that movie and, you know, slyly for the campaign for it. It made me kind of bummed that she hasn't gotten to shepherd another movie. Like, I don't know if she had another dream project that she didn't get to make. She but like, it. She seemed like such a mogul. The Magic Mike live show in, Los- in, in London, rather, uh, <laughs> when it gets nominated next year, she will be the driving force behind that. She'll start her EGOT with a T. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rebecca, I'm throwing to you because you've, I feel like we've been yammering over you this whole time. What do you want to jump to? Well- well, I don't know if anyone else noticed this when Nicole Kidman won and she sort of made Denzel give her a kiss on the lips. And I just at yes. this moment after watching the Adrian Brody moment where you're like, these poor presenters do not go up there to sign up for kisses from the winners. <laughs> and I was just like, the stuff we obviously it's not the same as the Adrian Brody situation, but it you can tell Denzel's kind of like, what is happening right now? Well, and she I, was riffing on it seeming like yeah. pretty clearly. And, and he reacted to it. 
at least outwardly, a lot better than Halle Berry reacted to it. So, like, you get the feeling at least that, like, Nicole and Denzel are probably friendly from being sort of, like, A-listers. Yeah, had they worked together at this point? I don't think they have. I don't think they have. But, like, you know what I mean? They've probably been to 8 billion of these, you know, ceremonies together. And he sort of reacted and was just like, oh, like, he was a little bit in on the joke, I thought at least. And he did say that. By a nose. Uh, by a nose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. About that's, yeah. how, that's how I read it, is he, she was throwing it back. They got even. <laughs> it's not as bad as Steve Martin making fun of it earlier in the show. I will say that that. Oh, I that her real nose? Her nose joke, yeah. Oh, I thought, that, I thought was that was a good joke. The Denzel thing I've always taken a little bit, and it's I'm a little over the top about it, but it's like it's diminishing her performance at the moment right before she gets honored for it in a way that I was like, all right, yeah, 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 the nose, we get it. It does. I mean, I think he's just kind of cheekily trying to highlight how close of a race it was. That's the charitable take on it. <laughs> uh, as I wrote in the this hour story, there was a headline in Variety from not too long ago before the Oscars that read, if Nicole Kidman wins the Oscar, it will be by a nose. So that that phrase had been in the in the industry and had been mounting in in the context of that exact race. And talking so. about priming the pump for things, but like the nose thing for Nicole Kidman, you know, famously beautiful Nicole Kidman, she puts on a prosthetic, she wins an Oscar. Then comes Charlize Theron for Monster, what, the next year, right? Um, or was it two yeah. years later? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, so th- then that whole narrative about like, okay, you gotta, you gotta dress down, you gotta ugly up or whatever they, I think they use the word ugly in, in this ceremony at some point about kind of obliquely about Nicole Kidman. Um, yeah. So that's another kind of little mini trend that was starting on this evening. Yeah. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Okay, can we go back to talking about the Oscar family album, uh, which I just did not know was going to be part of the ceremony uh, until we got to, you know, I realized there's like Nicole Kidman has given her speech and there's 45 minutes left in the show. And you're like, wow, it's getting late on the East Coast. Um, what a thrill. Uh, Joe, you've written about this Oscar family album before. I think you did it for Vulture. It's like a thing that will never happen again at the Oscars. Um, I think you just share my enduring love for seeing all of these people sitting together. It's a miracle. They should do it every ceremony. <laughs> they, that might uh, be like, weird. They had done it five years before at the uh, 70th Oscars, the Titanic year, because um, that was the t- that was the Oscars that I had on VHS, so I watched that one a lot. Um, and I loved it then. I loved it this time. We're coming up, we're only five years away from the 100th Academy Awards. If there's ever a time to do something like that again, it would be the 100th Academy Awards. I would absolutely love it. It's just, it's one of those things where all it is is asking the audience to just sort of like take a step back and appreciate this like long history of movies you may remember, may not remember, these sort of like these movie star faces, uh, you know, old and young. I love the parts where they're like seated next to each other and they're sort of like, you know, chatting with each other. And it's just like, what could they possibly be talking about? It's Katie, you mentioned in a text with me earlier this week, something about how this kind of an Oscar ceremony really focuses on the the sort of shared cinematic history 
the way that the Oscars can can communicate a shared cinematic history in a way that they don't anymore or they feel pressured not to anymore. And I miss it. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, like, assume that everyone has to learn about movies the same way I did. Like, we're all of a similar enough generation that I think we all learned about what Bridge on the River Kwai was from clips and montages at the Oscars. Um, and the Oscars, again, like, they don't have to be in charge of that. But it was such a valid, helpful way just to get that stuff in your brain, just to say, like, I know that Citizen Kane is a thing. I'm aware of, you know, a start or whatever it is. Um and it just All those is, Peter O'Toole clips. Oh, my God. The yeah. Peter O'Toole section. Like, I mean, that was like 80% Lawrence of Arabia, where it's like, you, I know you wish you'd just given it to him for that. Um, I just miss it so much. And I feel, you know, I don't want to, like, complain about, like, the TikTok kids talking about old movies. But, like, I think that the literacy about what old movies can offer you is going down, uh, at least in the way that it's talked about on the Internet. And the Oscars have such a huge opportunity to bring that kind of stuff back. Definitely. Yeah. I think it's also you watch something like this and this kind of family album, and it it illustrates it so clearly what the history is. I mean, just even in those nominee reels when you're going from the black and white and then you start to get color contenders mixed in, and it's just it's all feels very cohesive and it feels very I don't know if legible is the right word, but yeah, for someone who's coming in who doesn't know this history as well or who doesn't understand the value of it, I think it just presents it really beautifully and simply. It's so interesting because I feel like every year now the Academy says, this show is for movie lovers. But <laughs> yeah. the, like, this is the exact way to do that. Yeah. And, I th- and and apparently there were supposed to be 75 people on that stage and then people dropped out because of the year and the, the tone of the show um, in contrast to the war. But if they can get 100 people on that stage for the oh 100th, like, it, would just, mm-hmm. it would kill. So hopefully they're listening and planning already because it's only five years away. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure someone like Celeste Holm did not want to present an Oscar, but it's actually like nice to see some of these former Oscar winners that like do harken back to an Oscar history, a cinema history type of thing where, you know, this uh, whole class ends with Teresa Wright. Oh my God, Teresa Wright! It was so exciting to see her! But you have, like, juvenile Oscar winners there. Like, a lot of people know who Haley Mills is. They might not know that she has an Oscar, but, like, mm-hmm. why not have Haley Mills present an Oscar with Colin Farrell or something? Oh you God. know, it, it to me, it's this nice kind of catch-all where you can throw in a lot of Oscar history and a lot of movie history into this cool thing of seeing all these people who've won before. But it also, I think, presents opportunities that they could do that elsewhere in the show. Like, if you brought up Liza Minnelli for an Oscar family album last year and not had her speaking, like, would there have been all this, like, kind of sense of unease about, you know, her and her health? Mm-hmm. Like, give give them a chance just to sit and be ad- admired. Like, the smiles yeah. and, like, like, Jennifer Jones sitting there and, like, yep. kind of reveling and being in the spotlight one more time. It's this really beautiful thing. And again, like, it's very self-serving the Oscars to be like, we are the most special thing in the world. But you know what? If you're watching the Oscars... You should think that they're the most special thing in the world. It's not for you, other people. <laughs> if they're going to be the most special thing in the world for anything, it should be for that, right? It should yeah. be for gathering, right. you know, 75 at that point years of of movie history together. It might be the only place in the world where you can see Margaret O'Brien. Yeah. <laughs> Period. Like, <laughs> it's, also, it's also the only place in the world where uh, Frida Kahlo and Maury Povich will get shout-outs from the same podium at different points yes. in the ceremony, which I, the short film winner uh, thanking Maury Povich, who apparently was a producer on Twin Towers, which um did not know until I rewatched the ceremony, <laughs> so that was pretty awesome to find out. 
Joe, you've clearly never been to the Connie Chung Awards. I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another Oscar history thing I don't want to forget is there's a montage kind of just halfway through the show. I don't know what the occasion was of just talking to previous Oscar winners about winning Oscars. And uh, Shirley Jones Mm -hmm. says winning an Oscar improved my sex life considerably. I sure like to win another one. Kathy Bates kisses the ass of her Oscar statue. I mean, I hope that's in the Academy Museum somewhere. Just put that on a loop. But yeah. My favorite moment of that, Katie, was you got to see a very, very short moment of Stephen Sondheim holding up his Oscar, which is significant because he was not at the ceremony of the year that he won for uh, sooner or later from Dick Tracy. So that made me smile. Yeah, it's it's such a good bit. I mean, again, like the Academy Museum basically exists to have yes. all this history that they don't have room for in the telecast. So hopefully it's there somewhere. Kathy Bates' whole intro there, too. You can just add it to the vault of Kathy Bates' great 2003 Oscar She moments. was kind She's... of a delight throughout this entire... She was the one. She was the one who presented that montage, and, like, halfway yep. through, she kind of, like, turns on the banter as written and is just sort of just, the like... The copy is so terrible. <laughs> Meryl also does the thing where she reads that quote about, like, a, uh, a man once said that somebody who gets... Uh, honored frequently doesn't deserve it or something. And she said, whoever said that must have been insane. (laughs) um, It was just a little bit of sort of like snideness uh, uh, against the the writing of it, which I uh, thought was very funny. Which Gummer is in the audience with her? That's Mamie Gummer. Is it Mamie? Is it? Oh, oh, I thought you you were saying confident. It's probably Louisa. Yeah. I think it was Louisa. I think it's the Jacobson, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's not even a Gummer. (laughs) It's well, a no, well, not publicly. She, yeah, she is yeah. a gummer. I guess at that point she would have been a gummer, and then she changed her name for like SAG rules, right? Yeah. So she says. Meryl also <laughs> got that um, that huge laugh on the Florence of Arabia line introducing Peter O'Toole, just like again with the tone of the entire like the gay jokes of this period. Um, the, the audience yeah. got gave big laughs for a lot of things that I watching at home I could not totally figure out yeah it's just that kind of time warp it's like yeah (laughs) this is 2003 i mean that's true when i was in college we we hated iraq and didn't like gay people much more you know like it was just (laughs) that's that's where we were the old days good old days one other thing i wanted to bring up was just we've talked a little bit about the the best picture lineup at large and it is an interesting lineup in that it is not that different from this year in terms of the sliding scale of how big these movies are and how successful they were. Mm-hmm. Like The Pianist and The Hours were under 40 million domestically or around there. Gangs of New York was not, you know, it was a huge scale movie. It was not a hit by any standard. And then you had Chicago and Lord of the Rings, which were huge hits. And, you know, for all the talk of how the Oscars don't recognize big movies anymore. And obviously this year has been an exception from the beginning because of Top Gun and Avatar. But, you know, you also have movies like Elvis and Everything Everywhere in there, and you have a mix of movies that a lot of people saw and not as many people saw. Um, yeah, well, and The Lord of the Rings was sort of the avatar of that time anyway. So, like, you're right, you're right when you say, like, sliding scale. Like, that's sort of the 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 span of it. Yep. Brandon Fraser introducing the Two Towers best picture thing and and talking about yeah. Gollum and, and stuff. It was just, like, a little bit like that was that was kind of toward the end of – Brandon Fraser's first movie star mm-hmm. era, right? And now 20 years later, right. here he is again. Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. Brendan and Colin both being in there, I was just like, hmm, the ghosts of the past are coming back to us this year. Yeah. <laughs> well, for our listeners who didn't get to rewatch the 2003 Oscars, we are sorry that we're not able to share as widely as we want to. I mean, you can watch clips from a lot of these speeches, but is there anything from this year in terms of the winners or the nominees or like cultural moments that maybe if you 
uh, are listening and don't remember 2003 and you're very young um, that we want to make sure people seek out? The animated film race was kind of stacked just in terms of movies that have lasted. Um, not necessarily that they're great or not, but you had Ice Age, you had Lilo and Stitch, and then you had the winner as Spirited Away. I mean, that just, I'm forgetting who presented it off the top of my head, but here Cameron Diaz. Cameron Diaz, that's right. So first, yeah, yeah first. Princess that's Diana how herself. we begin. Uh, and just he, seeing the clips of them back to back, it was just like, yeah. Yeah. I'll never forget Cameron Diaz saying, oh, Blarney, uh, spared it away, you know, and she <laughs> finally could speak the way she did. I thought a really cool win that I had, I remembered, uh, but had also forgotten at the same time somehow, is that Almodovar won for screenplay, not for, you know, foreign language film, which I think is, mm-hmm. that's a cool win. Even if, in retrospect, having watched Talk to Her again a couple years ago, I don't really like that movie. It has really weird po- gender politics and stuff like that. Um, but um, it is interesting that uh, that he won a screenplay prize versus, you know, what you would expect, which would just be like good foreign language film. It's the only one that's actually his because the All About My Mother Oscar right. goes to the country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and, and I believe Spain did not submit Talk to Her this year. So there was a whole controversy behind that. And obviously Sony Classics did a great campaign on it because they also got him the director nomination. Yeah, when I spoke with some Sony Classics people last year about Parallel Mothers, the Talk to Her playbook was exactly the one they kept referencing about. I mean, they didn't take it as far, obviously, but in terms of getting Penelope nomination, it was very much fueled by the fact that Spain did not submit the movie. I think you also have to watch the Best Picture win because that producer gets up there and he like can't remember who to thank and he asks the audience to shout out people and you're just yes. like, is this how flustered you get when your <laughs> film was going to win this award and you probably already knew? It's just, it, it cracked me up. Well, and that person, Martin Richards, is a was primarily a Broadway producer and was sort of producer on the Chicago movie because of the Broadway connection to it. Like, a fascinating... Like, go on the... go Take the Wikipedia deep dive oh on producer Martin Richards sometime. Yeah. Uh, for, a former husband of a Johnson & Johnson heiress who was also, like, he was sort of quasi-openly gay in real life during their marriage. And there was a whole... Like, the personal life tab on this guy's Wikipedia page is worth the price of admission, is all I will say. <laughs> Do we know who shouted out Bob Fosse to him? <laughs> It was the ghost of Bob Fosse. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Skulking in the back row, smoking a cigarette. It was actually um, Michelle Williams' early, early in character as Gwen Verdon. She- right, right, right. <laughs> right. I also want, like, we didn't really linger on it too much, but, like, the Michael Moore moment is such a like, enduring moment of, like, the audience starts to boo him and then people are booing the booers is from what that, that that's what I had have sort of heard through the years is that like it's halfway people booing Michael Moore and then halfway people booing the people booing Michael Moore. You but it's fascinating it to watch the audience reactions and a lot of people don't really know what to do. So they're being very kind of stoic, except at the corner of the one frame, Amy Madigan and Ed Harris mm-hmm. are living it up <laughs> and really, really <laughs> enjoying the moment. In a way that I loved. They are the most, like, rabble-rousing Oscar to, like, the Ilya Kazan moment to this. Like, bring them back. Let them stir some shit up. Well, the Ilya Kazan moment makes me falsely remember them as being very sort of, like, dour Oscar audience members because they sat on their hands and they wouldn't applaud for Ilya Kazan in that year. And then, like, this year, like, 
Amy Madigan's like on her feet for Julie Andrews and she and like Bart Freundlich because like Julianne Moore, it was the hours row, right? So like Bart Freundlich and Amy Madigan are the spouses sitting next to each other and they're just cutting it up throughout the entire, like they were my favorite reaction shots throughout this entire ceremony. I love them. Well, Michael Moore got this huge standing ovation, which you forget. Yes. Diane Lane was so thrilled that he won when she read his name. Yeah. It, I of course, as you could expect me to do, I went full Zapruder on the Michael Moore. <laughs> I wanted you to. Uh, the the standing ovation is so fast and so it, it, up until that point, it feels like people are hesitant to do standing ovations. Weirdly, they're very hesitant to give Julie Andrews one, which about made my head explode. <laughs> but um, the very loud booing and then like joe mentioned the booing to the booing happened very quickly in the speech you can tell it throws michael moore off in terms of what he had planned to say and you do see this kind of wave go over the most famous people in the crowd of they have been training for these type of things (laughs) to not show anything (laughs) on their face during this happening except for one person clapping behind denzel washington and because I was paying attention to later shots, the only famous person it could have possibly been is Ben Affleck. <laughs> Do we think it was Ben Affleck, though? Does that track with 2003 Ben Affleck? I, I mean, know. maybe Jennifer was like, you need to oh, clap. I like that. You need to clap for this. <laughs> it was a lot of calculation, though, right? It was a lot of, like, what yeah. happens if I applaud Michael Moore here? Like, mm-hmm. what, like... Because there was people so, are so, already on edge because of the war, and there weren't even gifts or Twitter yet. Like the stakes yeah, were lower yeah. than they would be now. It, right, that's true. It is a kind of poetic justice in a way that uh, there was a joke made by Martin at the beginning about you know France not wanting to get into the Iraq War. Uh, we remember freedom fries, all that bullshit. And then just a couple years later, Michael Moore made a documentary about the American boondoggle in Iraq. And then the French were like, here's the palm door. <laughs> uh, the yeah. Academy, <laughs> the academy right. felt differently. Uh, the, the bitter chaser for that is that Bowling for Columbine obviously was a reaction to a school shooting that was well over 20 years now. Uh, and 20 years later, we haven't done anything about that. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's just it, Michael yeah. Moore, like as much as his films have come under some scrutiny for accuracy issues and whatever else, like... The guy was responding to things in the moment that uh, he, I think, justifiably recognized were, to a certain extent, intractable and are still, you know, problems now. Uh, well, Joe and Chris, thank you so much for returning to join us. Um, this was a, a listener wrote in making sure that we would do a flashback. So now you are officially an annual tradition. Um, Joe, thank you for writing that in. <laughs> 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 Ballot stuffing campaign. So, um, yeah, see you for 2004. Yeah, we'll be here. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. We'll be talking about the Oscar-nominated shorts. So um, you can start catching up. Um, Shorts TV are the people who host it, and it's in uh, theaters all over the place, uh, all over the country. So if you want to Google Shorts TV, uh, Oscar Shorts, you can find out where it's playing near you or watch them online and watch along with us. Um, You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield, 97. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best preview of next year's Vanity Fair Hollywood issue cover goes to Joe Reed. Sherrod Stone in bed with the AOL mascot.
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.